1: The Matchball. Welcome to The Matchball 30. 30 years on, we chart the journey from Leeds United's return to the top flight to lifting the Championship Trophy in 1992. Taking that journey game by game and doing a matchball on the 30th anniversary of each game. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello. And I'm joined by the usual two. Michael Normantons here. Hello. And so is Moscow White. Daniel Chapman. Hello. First home game. Of the 1990 1991 season today. And it's a biggie.
2: I mean, this was a hell of a way to start. Going away to Everton felt like it, I think a little bit like Leeds going back to the Premier League and away, announcing ourselves that an away ground first was good. But then scum at home It's exactly what everybody had been waiting for for years. No game against them since April 1982, a nil-nil draw, no win. Over them since February 1981, a one 0 win at Old Trafford when Brian Flynn scored, and there was all the build-up. Was um, you know the the tickets were sold weeks in advance. There was forgery alerts. There were printing maps in the Yorkshire Evening Post so that people could handle the one-way system that they'd had to put in place to keep everybody under control. And then uh, scum rocked up. The FA Cup holders under Alex Ferguson won his first bit of silverware after Mark Robbins kept him in a job and we hammered them nil-nil, but we hammered them.
1: There was very much a feeling before this game, and I recall it, of this being the acid test, this one. This was kind of uh, the high watermark, the most difficult thing we were likely to face across the season. If we can come through this, we might be all right.
2: There were bigger teams, uh, or, or better teams rather. Liverpool were the league champions and we were the uh, second division champions, but. Scum was scum, and getting straight into that battle to test ourselves against a team that we actually completely hated and that completely hated us, it gives it a different edge to as if you you were playing the best team, we were playing the biggest rivals.
1: Reduced capacity, new pitch, a new family stand, all being tested for the first time then in this particular match. And I was in that south stand, in that family stand. We moved there this season, I remember it.
2: Did you get some free
3: stickers? I'm going to say Yes. Haven't still got them, as far as I'm aware, but let's not rule it out. Why were there empty seats in the South Stand then? Because it it didn't seem it didn't look full, even though it was full. Apparently,
1: was that something to do with it being reserved for families only? Though nobody, not everybody, had quite got the message yet that families should go in that part of the ground. Because Leeds United, you know, not historically noted for being a very uh, family rich environment all the time.
2: The last thing they were saying about tickets being available when they were telling people to. To check If you bought them off a pub, check with the club that they are actually valid, was that um, the only tickets that were still available were for members. So not every member had bought their ticket. But if this was the days when, I mean, we were talking uh, in the previous episode about the the FA hanging their suspended death sentence over the club, that if there was any misbehaviour, the club would pretty much be shut down straight away. And part of that was a membership scheme. So you had to have an ID card and be on the database to buy a ticket. So if they couldn't all come, then they ended up with some empty seats. And there was that weird gap as well. The uh, the standing at the front of the low fields, there was a, a gap between the um, Leeds fans and the, the Scum fans who had made their way over. So they, I don't think they sold all their tickets. That would be the thing. No fans, Man United.
3: It's strange to look back on, isn't it, that our first game up against Man United at home wouldn't be like the most demanded thing ever. Genuinely, if we played them and we were allowed in stadiums this season, I think we could sell a hundred thousand tickets at this game.
2: <laughs> it does, uh, it it does maybe show how you are a, a child, Michael. <laughs> but you have that in common with um, a lot of people who won't remember this: that football was fucking horrible at this point. Where are we? We're around. It's August twenty eighth, so we're about six weeks since England got knocked out of Italia ninety, and Gaza cried and. Wardle missed his penalty and Nesson Dormer played. And suddenly everybody thought, oh, football's all right, isn't it? Because up until that point, the last five years of the 1980s had been saw Bradford, Hillsborough, um, the rioting at Luton when Millwall and Luton fans were fighting on their pitch. And um, so, I mean, we go to uh, Luton after this and you literally, did they banned away fans. So it wasn't a popular game, even though it was the the biggest thing in the country at the time it was it was still seen sort of as the preserve of hooligans and idiots Alex
1: Ferguson had a bit of a whinge
2: yeah he wasn't happy about how Leeds United played in this game but anybody who's familiar with his work since whinging is not necessarily out of uh, character but they whinged so much in this game that the police actually had to intervene with Manchester United's bench they were that outraged about um, a tackle by Chris White that he got booked for Ferguson said afterwards, uh, Sterling and Batty got booked as well. Ferguson said, I thought they were bad tackles. Should do his what? Vo- Michael, can you do like Billy Connolly, but angry?
3: I thought they were bad tackles. That's not how it sounds though, is it? It's near
2: enough. It'll do.
3: I thought we were supposed to be cleaning up the game. But it could be that, that oh, there's a reason. I think Leeds were hyped up by the crowd who demand everything from them. And they could have got carried away.
1: Funny to think now it was uh, only 29,172 inside the stadium that night, but it was a sellout because we're in the pre-East stand days at this point. And it's nice to have Ferguson complaining about the Leeds crowd because that sort of seems to indicate that maybe it worked a little bit. What what did you make of it all then, Michael? Because this is like the first time you've seen us play this team.
3: It's not the first time I've ever seen it. Like I know for the extra ball, we've watched the Sheffield Wednesday game, which is the season after, and I've watched the season reviews and stuff quite a lot. But in terms of watching, a, I suppose, a normal-ish sort of game unfold, yeah, it's the first, I guess, the first full 90 I've watched. I'm mainly confused by why Haddock isn't like an all-time legend. He's the best defender on the pitch in this game by an absolute mile. He's class. What happened to him? Why did he not go on to have a statue built outside the ground?
2: I don't know how how far ahead we leap in time um, in this particular format, but an injury will bring his career to a sad end before the, the end of this season. Spoiler alert, he had been absolutely superb in um, in Division 2. He was Chris Fairclough's centre-back partner. And in this game, he came in at left-back. I think because um, Mel Sterland was attacking so much down the right, we almost went to a, a back three. But you're absolutely right. The number of times you see a ball kind of goes behind our defence and Peter Haddock just zips over from left-back, it sweeps up, just tidies up the problem. He is absolutely superb. Although Chris White has a massive goal at him at one point, which is very, um it says something about maybe the characters that Wilkinson was bringing in that he liked assertive players because this is Chris White's second match for the club. And after, and it will be his first game with Peter Haddock because Haddock didn't play at, at Everton. And, um, Haddock commits a foul, and White like chases after him, knocks him on the shoulder, and it's it absolutely yelling at him for giving giving this free kick away. And Chris White taken his shirt. Haddock wore well, six or through the the promotion season, so there's no question of any like kind of being nice to each other. We had a brand new signing telling Peter Haddock, who was absolutely superb on the night, that what he was doing wasn't good enough, and that's that's Leeds of this era.
3: I think part of that dominance that you mentioned down the right hand side as well. I don't know if it's because Mel Sterland just potentially knew before I just realised on the night that Maldonaghi is absolutely shit and he's just thought, well, I can just go down there. I can do what I want on that side because he's not going to do anything about it.
1: Well, let's run through the teams then. The 1-11 to 11 for Leeds. Lukic, Sterland, Haddock, Batty, Fairclough, White, Strachan, Verardi, Chapman, McAllister and Speed completing the 11. And on the subs bench, Chris Kamara and Snoddin. Uh For those lot, it was, I mean, what an awful roll call this is. Les Seeley, Mal Donaghy, Steve Bruce, Gary Pallister, Dennis Irwin, woo! Clayton Blackmore, Paul Innes, Brian McClare, Mike Phelan, who I want to come back to, remind me to talk about Mike Phelan in a bit, and Neil Webb and Mark Hughes. And on the bench for them, Beardsmore and Robbins.
2: Should we just go straight in on Mike Phelan? Because I get the feeling, is it his miss?
1: It's not his miss, so much as his appearance. And it's cruel to to pick on people. But I looked at him and I thought, why is there an old man cart-horsing round on this football pitch? He looks to be at least 55 years old, I would put him, if he's not a day. He's He, he looks beyond middle age. He's pushing towards golden years. I looked him up. Do you know how old he was in this game?
2: 19.
1: Yeah, he was <laughs> not quite 28. He was still 27, pushing 28 at this point. It was his 28th birthday about a month after this. What? were we feeding people during the 1980s? Were they just being brought up on like a diet of asbestos or something?
3: And why in that case does he kick the ball as if it's the very last thing he's ever going to do in his life? It's kind of some sort of testimonial that might roll someone out who's quite ill and be like, we'll let him take a penalty or something. Can't really play, but we'll let him kick the ball once. And the shot that he has is, it's like someone... I'm aware he's not left-footed, but he kicks it like someone who has literally never had to use it before. and he, he doesn't know what's going to happen, so he just does it gently.
2: He's wearing five as well, which always annoyed me about the scum team of this era because Steve Bruce insisted on wearing four and playing in central defence. It meant one of the scum's midfielders always wore five, and it was often feeling, I used to fucking hate that. The only passable member of this team is Les Sealy, who I always used to find incredibly entertaining. He was um, known everywhere as mr angry but he always he played as if he hated manchester united as much as i did like every time he had to make a save he would look at them he'd look at steve bruce as if he was just absolutely sick of the fucking sight of him can't believe he has to ride a team bus with this pillow-faced imbecile and gary pallister who's just like a shit johnny woodgate yeah, and he would he'd never hold back as well. He used to absolutely just scream at them all. And I it kind of it was, you know, what we all wanted to do.
3: I think Steve Bruce in this, looking at the size of him here, I reckon he probably put on half a stone from this game to the end of his career and ever since. Just every year. Just a steady a steady five or six, seven pounds every year. No going back on it. Just gonna keep getting bigger and uglier.
1: Right. So let's talk through the events of the first half, because it's a nil-nil game, you might think on on First indication it's been boring, but these games are never boring, are they?
3: The first half, in fairness, isn't great. We're sort of on top, but there's not a great deal there. There's the there's the feel and chance, which is um, I've kind of already mentioned there. But it seems a bit like we're just not bothering passing to Strachan or McAllister. There's a lot of a lot of hoof in it. There's just there's a scumpre kick that goes miles wide, and you get a good ah. But that's about as much excitement as you get, really.
2: I mean, we are writing them off, but we should remember these are the the FA Cup holders and um, Neil Webb is technically an England midfielder. Paul Lintz is probably one of the biggest stars in the country. Mark Hughes played for Barcelona before this. Dennis Irwin was obviously, he was raised at Leeds, so he's supposed to be, uh, we taught him some good things, but he forgot them all gradually. And Gary Pallister, I think, was the most expensive defender in um, the country at this point. So you're basically talking about, he's 1990s Virgil van Dijk and with it being our first home game and being um, only the second game back in the, the first division, I think the first half has a sense of kind of, we just need to stay in the match and, and see what this is like and see how it works. And we've still, we've got the new signings that we talked about against Everton. McAllister in midfield, there's there's no sign of Vinnie Jones again. He is sitting on the bench, but this is the, the game who, that when I interviewed him years later, he said he, he hated the fact that he wasn't playing in this game, like kind of, people were asking him, oh, you know, why, why aren't you in the squad? And he said, he kind of, he had tears in his eyes saying, oh, I cannot believe I've not been picked for scum at home like the first game back in the first division. So we're getting used to McAllister. It's a completely different style of play. I think we're just feeling our way through the first half because the, the change in the second half is really noticeable. Do you feel
1: like the first half was, it was quite attritional? Is that the right word you'd use to describe it?
3: To an extent, but the better tackles are in the second half, actually. It just feels a bit like nothing is happening. Chapman, Gets a header in at some point, doesn't he? There's a, a run through midfield by Strachan in one of the few bits of proper football actually in the first half. I think it's right towards the end. He Strachan makes a run through the midfield, plays Sterling in on the right, and he crosses to Chapman. But his his head is pretty much kind of straight at Les Sealy. And I, just from this, I looked up Les Sealy. I didn't realise his odd story of, sort of playing for Manu that he basically wasn't wanted at Luton, and Manu got him for a few games, and he ended up winning FA Cup and then being their first choice keeper for a bit.
2: It's a strange parallel to the way Alex Ferguson had treated Gordon Strachan, which is one of the other subplots to this game. Because Jim Layton and Gordon Strachan were both at Aberdeen with Ferguson when they were winning, uh, like the European Cup Winners' Cup, and getting to the late stages of the European Cup, and were you know you can't deny they were an absolutely superb team. And he, he had them both at Manchester United with him, Ferguson, and he told Strachan effectively. He was finished, he can go to Leeds, didn't care what happened, just um, you know, go to Leeds or Sheffield Wednesday, just get away from here. And pretty much did the same to Jim Leighton. Leighton played in the first match of the FA Cup final against Crystal Palace that was a draw, a high-scoring draw, and made loads of mistakes. It just bombed him straight out and ruined his confidence. I don't think Jim Leighton ever recovered from that, which served him right because he shouldn't have signed for scum in the first place.
1: And we need to warn the younger listener now that we're going to tell you something that may upset you or confuse you. But there was a chant in the first half that was sung by the Leeds crowd. Prepare yourselves.
3: because You'll never walk alone. But being sung at a pace, well, it starts off slow and then it gets some little claps in the middle of it as well. And you'll never, like that. But yeah, unusual. On the plus side, there are nananas in um, marching on together, which is good.
1: Yeah, you forget that You'll Never Walk Alone was everybody's song through most of the 80s. It's only more recently that Liverpool have taken full ownership of that one. Maybe we should take it back off them. What do you think?
0: A reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work, shopify.com work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: Well, in the absence of much action to talk about in the first half, the second half was a stark contrast to that. And while, of course, it did finish nil-nil, plenty to talk about in this half.
2: Count the passes twice. Quite early on, there were two really good moves. And then the second one, I counted the passes leading, uh, leading up to a Sterling shot, and there were 12. Building from the back, McAllister dropping deep, dictating the play, going wide to the left, then moving quickly to the right when um, there was a classic Sterling and Strachan move way. Sterling stands there and, I mean, it's so telegraphed, it's almost hilarious, but people found it really hard to cope with. Strachan just runs around the back of him, and you can see him going, but I think the question is then, on this occasion, Sterling didn't play him in, he went straight for a shot instead of sending him down the line, but it's like, I think Howard Wilkinson got must have got them in at half-time and said, right, we've got no problems here. They're not all that. This might be the first division, but none of you should be losing an individual battle in this game. We can run that midfield, go out there and get stuck into them. And we did get stuck into them in a way that we hadn't really managed in the first half. It's wave after wave of Leeds attack.
1: That overlap that you've just described there, Moscow, is very reminiscent of modern-day Bielsa Leeds with the players just going down the outside. We've seen it so many times during the 2019-2020 season. It's one thing knowing that we're going to do it. It's another thing stopping it.
3: That's what you can do when you've got the super fit Mel Sterland in your team. I would like to see um, uh, not a Mel Sterland of this era, but uh, even a Mel Sterland of that era in, in a murder ball session. But he is super fit, apparently. And in fairness, for a, he's quite a big chap even back then. He's quite a unit, but he's, he does keep putting those runs in.
2: He could move. The Flying Pig was his nickname up and down that wing. And I've often said he uh, he invented Danny Alves' career because half the time with Mel Sterland, you would see him on the other team's touchline. And it was him and Strachan working together in in tandem. Strachan in this game just gets better and better as it goes on. And you can see some of what made him such an inspirational player in this match, chiefly because I talked about Chris White yelling at Peter Haddock earlier on. That happens in the second half as well. But in each half, Strachan is about to take a free kick from wide. And I don't know who it is in the middle, that's not standing where they must have rehearsed it. And in a Wilkinson, Howard Wilkinson training session, they rehearsed set pieces for hours and hours and hours. Somebody was clearly not standing in the right place. And in the first half, Strachan basically walks away from where the ball is. He's marching into the penalty area, absolutely screaming blue murder at this person to get them to stand in the right place and then walks back. And in the second half, He's. Uh, he looks as if he's ready to maybe take it quickly. Spots somebody in the wrong place, and he literally throws his hands over his face. His head goes back, and he spins around on one foot like a five-year-old having a massive tantrum. And he's and then he turns to them and starts screaming at them. Not only did he have uh, quick feet to go scampering around and dictating the play from the right side of the pitch, but I think he must have introduced that that fear factor into his own players. I mean, you really didn't want to be on the end of that. It's easier just stand in the right place, do what Strak wants.
3: To give a modern parallel here, I think you can see the comparisons with Hernandez there as well. How, because in this game, the, the commentator is saying, "Oh, you know, he's he's getting on. How much longer can Strack and do this for?" And he did it for about another five years, six years after this. Like he just never stopped. And I think it's the same when people talked about Pablo when he was, you know, in his thirties joining us. we like, well, maybe all right for a season or two, but probably not going to be able to do it forever. But he can and he did. Well, what did you think of him in this game? Then he looked very young. If you could only see his performance and not his face and his uh, he's quite badly aged hair, he looks incredibly vibrant. He's the most, he's buzzing around. He looks probably the most, the most modern player on the pitch. Is how I'd phrase it in terms of the little spaces he's trying to get into. Like he's, his movement is very good in that he he does bomb forward, but then there are points as well where he just holds back because he thinks if I just stop and everyone else moves, I'm going to have a nice bit of space here. Like Moscow said, everything is going around him. I think McAllister and Batty also come into it a lot more in the in the second half. And there's that that nice challenge on Ince where Batty kind of gets stuck in. I'm pretty sure he fouls him, but I'm not bothered. He deserved it. And Ince is just about to get up and probably try and foul Batty back. And just as he does, McAllister comes in for and just goes, "Nope, nope. I'm just gonna uh, I'm just gonna push you out of the way." And then from that, we break with Strachan and ends up with quite a decent save. Actually, it's kind of a bit of a half chance for him, but. I think that little passage of play just sums up what's going on in this half in that we're, we're bullying them, but we're also playing some really nice stuff.
1: And to continue the theme from the Everton game, where we saw the famous midfield four put together on the pitch for the first time, they dominated this game and it feels like that was the area of the pitch that we really won it. Like, you just touched on it there, the assertiveness of, of Batty, who's dominating midfield to the point where Ince is subbed off eventually.
2: Yeah, that makes it into uh, David Batty's book that he wrote later, that this, is the, um, this was the game when I mean, he, he said he regarded it as a personal triumph. We drew the match nil-nil, but it seemed like a victory to me because uh, this is his his first big test in the, the first division Everton in a But he was up against Stuart McCall in Evans' midfield, who we've played against uh, for uh, when McCall was at Bradford. Loads, but as we said before, Paul Lynch had made a huge transfer from West Ham that had loads of controversy attached to it because a photo had been leaked to the papers of him wearing a Man United shirt weeks before the transfer was done. And that caused all kinds of problems. Um, But Ince was a big star and a big midfielder. And yeah, um, as Batty says, um, uh, when the United bench signalled for Ince to be substituted, I got a surge of satisfaction. I remember looking up into the stand and motioning to my dad with a gesture that said, yes, I've seen him off.
3: And his dad probably said, you're playing shit.
2: Well, there is, um, there is an element of that. I mean, the page uh, continues at the end of the, um, at the end of his first week, his dad writes, can David keep this up? Which is, um, if you've heard about David Batty's relationship with his dad, his dad was a, an absolute brutal critic constantly throughout his career. Like nothing he did was ever good enough, but drove him on. So that's probably, can David keep this up? Acknowledges that he is actually playing very well. And, uh, Neil Webb is supposed to be an England midfielder. He's supposed to be the craft came from Nottingham Forest. He had that Brian Clough training alongside Ince's kind of hard man acts. And I don't really know what the fuck Mike Feeling was for, but Batsy absolutely ran the show in there. uh, McAllister gives um, Strachan a bit of a new dimension because so much of the second division game was all about Strachan and Sterling in the corner. Now, uh, Strachan has a, the opportunity when he looks inside um, and comes in off that wing, he's got McAllister to, to play with. Phil Hay, actually, when he was writing about Pablo Hernandez last season, described him as a false seven for the way he started on the right wing, but then would end up just playing all over the pitch. And um, as soon as he wrote that, I realised that's he's describing Gordon Strachan as well. But you see it all starting to knit together, apart from possibly Gary Speed, is a bit on the, the fringes in this game, but um, ends up being subbed off for Glyn Snodden, who, uh, but that may have been, we needed a mullet out there. We needed that thing flowing in the breeze up and down the left wing and uh, speed was a bit too short back and sides at this point, so had to come off.
3: I think maybe speed's a bit limited as well by the fact he's got a a right-footed centre-back behind him, so there's not much overlap going on. And also, Dennis Irwin was actually quite a good player, so therefore a a bit more difficult to run at.
2: I think Dennis Irwin might was a factor in this. We definitely targeted Mal Donaghy, and I think there may have been a, a calculation in Wilkinson's mind that we're not going to get much out of trying to overlap past Dennis Irwin. So
3: even if he does look like a, a rosy cheeked farmhand.
2: <laughs> so we put Haddock in and keep it solid at the back while we like go to a back three whenever Sterland is up setting up the attacks with Strachan and speed gets a, a little bit Lost in all that. But remember, Speed had not played uh, anywhere near as many games as David Batty at this point. He'd only come in the team like February of the season before as a as a starter. So all quite new to him.
1: Let's pick the positives and negatives from this game. And the big negative we have to pick out, I would say, is the Lee Chapman chance, a massive chance to have won this game.
2: I mean, Chappie. He does, uh, traditionally, He's uh, he was regarded as a slow starter. One of those strikers, it doesn't score the first few games, but when the ball is bouncing in the six-yard box, it's a great move. McAllister chips a, a wonderful curving pass into the penalty area, where Imre Verardi uh, an exquisite first touch to basically <laughs> uh, kick the ball into his own face
3: cushions it, doesn't <laughs> he, off the nose and cheek
2: I think to be fair to him it's sort of his shoulder I think but he does basically just boot it into the upper extremity of his body and it it bounces quite nicely we didn't mention he had a good chance earlier as well from a very similar situation when the game did go to the left McAllister was doing the creative stuff down there and it basically exactly the same pass oh no it was speed for this one speed played exactly the same pass kind of curving into the penalty area and Strachan nominally our right winger is on the left wing chasing that in and um Gary Pallister, who we mentioned before is the, the van Dijk of this team, tries to pass the ball three yards to Les Seely and completely fucks it up because um Imre Verardi's in there and his shot goes across the the box, um across the goal line. Doesn't go in. But now we're uh, deep into the uh the second half and, and Verardi is on the end of this beautiful pass from McAllister, controls it like a Jackie Harrison first touch, pings it um into the six yard box and Chapman Chapman. It's it's all. It's like he sort of jumps on the ball and lands on half of it instead of just kicking it forward. Michael is an expert in the striking technique. What What did you make of it?
3: From what I know of Lee Chapman, should have headed it. I'm aware it's across the ground, but he seems very good with his head. So I'd have gone with that. But I've, like you, I have no idea what he's doing. It looks like he could just take an extra step and just side foot it into the goal. But for some reason, he thinks like he has to get it first time and so does this ridiculous... It's almost like a it looks like a bad tackle, but there's only a ball there. I can't I can't imagine what he's thinking.
2: The turf does go flying up around him and afterwards um he said that the ground seemed to give beneath me as I went in for the ball. The pitch has been resurfaced and maybe it's not quite knitted together yet, but I think all that grass, these clods of turf, kind of come flying up around him after he's jumped on top of the ball and it's gone spinning. Um, off in the wrong direction. It basically just like rolls into Les Seely's hands. So I didn't really buy that. He should have just buried it. And if he'd buried it, it would have been our first win over Scum, as we said before, since 1981. And a real way of announcing that we were back in the first division. But as it was, we kind of had to rely on the fact that we were much, 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 much better than them. And that even if, because we haven't mentioned this, we need to get this in before we go, even with Chapman missing that that chance, you'd still take him over like 20 Brian McClairs.
3: I think we need to give a bit of a positive as well, um, positive mention to Chris White as well, who the booking that he gets from Mark Hughes, I think it's fair to say he's waited for that. He comes, he's well out of his, the back four and the ball goes to Hughes in midfield and you get the feeling White has thought, you've been moaning all game, I'm just going to give you something to complain about properly here. and just absolutely clatters him and you just think, good. And it upsets Mark Hughes. In fact, it upsets Mark Hughes than less than a lot of other stuff in the game, weirdly enough. He's been complaining about more or less everything. And then all of a sudden he gets absolutely assaulted and he just sort of gets up and goes, ah, well, fair enough.
2: Mark Hughes had the most inappropriate nickname of any footballer. who's always known as Sparky. And you think that's like, you know, a nice character, somebody that's fun to be around and like a bit of a Sparky funster, but he's just a total whinge bag. Um, And he manages to get into a... There's like a real weird, like, sort of scrap in the corner and the commentary on it's great. He's battling for the ball with Sterling. And the commentator says something like, Mark Hughes has decided Sterling doesn't need his legs, so he's taking them off him. And he's on the floor and he sort of grabs Sterling's legs and he grabs Hughes back as if to say, well, you you can't fucking do that. And then Chris Fairclough comes piling in and Hughes... It's like, um, you know, when you used to, like... Obviously, I didn't. I'd probably be more likely to be the victim of it. But when people are bullying kids at school, they just get them in a circle and they just shove them from person to person. In, in the middle. Like Hughes is in the middle of that, Of that, but he's doing it himself, just barging into people. And um, Gordon Strachan, who I think he'd played with him at, at Scum, he must have done, kind of goes in there and is like putting a hand on him goes like, well, what are you doing? And then I think Lukic spots that Hughes is about to kill him so he, he, he's dragging Strachan away. And the, the person who gets the biggest telling off out of it all is Chris Fairclough. The referee spends about a, a good minute ticking Chris Fairclough off and makes a big gesture as if any more of this from you and I'm going to send you off, I'm pointing at the tunnel. And uh, as far as I could see, Fairclough did nothing. It's a very nice man, Chris Fairclough. Whereas Mark Hughes always was an absolute tosser.
3: The only bit of the game where the commentator seems really upset by what he's seeing is when Golden Strachan kicks the ball about five yards. When the free kick's been given, he kicks the ball away and he's, he's going, oh dear, that's that's so disappointing to see. That's, oh oh no, oh no. There's been some, some serious acts of violence going on elsewhere and he's not bothered about that. But all of a sudden he's like, oh, oh we don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry children have had to see this. It's terrible.
1: Big fan as well of um, the aftermath of that Chris White thing and all the crybabies on the Man United bench as well trying to get... Get things done and, and it needled Ferguson, as we touched on at the start of the podcast, in that he thought we were kicking him everywhere. That's probably because we were, because they're scum bastards.
3: They got less than they deserved.
1: Other positives to take from it then. So we've got the new home kit, the famous home kit, because get this one as well, kids. We used to wear kits for two years on the trot back in this era. Um incredibly.
2: It looked very nice, didn't it? Underneath our the biggest uh floodlights in Europe, lighting it up a treat. And um, yeah, we added uh, a new pitch with New players, the new YEP family standard. We are essentially now also as good as Manchester United, which for the previous eight seasons in Division 2, we certainly we could never make that claim. But here we are, better than them. In fact, with a, a nicer kit, better players, better haircuts, and better fans, our manager's better. He's not. A, the police didn't have to talk to our manager, whereas they were getting involved with the scum bench. Just... Nice to be back in the top division and asserting ourselves as the brilliant club that we always were.
1: And we're back at Ellen Road in just a few days' time on September the 1st as we face Norwich City at home. The match ball.